start uh, talking, um, studying the scripture. All right, so can anybody help me and remind me of what we have been talking about for almost nine weeks now? Shadows of Golgotha. This is our week number nine, where we're actually going through the Old Testament and we're trying to look into different pictures in the Old Testament that shows us the cross of Christ, that different types and different uh, pictures that foreshadow the cross of Jesus. And the point of all of this, I want you guys to know that the cross of Jesus was the cross of Christ, was God's focal point from all eternity to all eternity. Amen? I am really hoping and praying that after we finish this, we will have a whole, lot, a whole lot more appreciation to the cross of Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, that this is what God was thinking about even before the foundation of the world. Amen? Amen. We started, uh, this is week number nine. We looked into the book of Genesis, into a couple of pictures of the cross in the book of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis 3.15, we saw the promise of God to Eve. And the promise is this, that her seed, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. And that's literally what Jesus did on the cross for Satan. Amen? And then we went to Genesis 3.20. And uh, in that verse, we saw God slaughtering an innocent animal and covering sinful Adam and Eve with garments of skin. And we say that this is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross and through his own righteousness, we are covered before a holy and righteous God. Amen? Amen. All right. And then we moved on to the ark of Noah, right? And we say this is a picture of the cross where the wrath of God fell on the ark, yet that ark that provided, that took the wrath of God upon itself, provided safety to those who are within and that's a picture of Jesus crucified. He took God's judgment on the cross. And that very cross is our safety from the very judgment of God. Right? And then we moved on. And the last picture we looked into in the book of Genesis was Genesis 22. When Abraham took Isaac to slaughter him on Mount Moriah. And Abraham prophetically spoke and to Isaac and said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And what we said is this, Abraham was not just talking about that ram that God provided that particular day for Isaac, but God was, Abraham was prophetically speaking about the ultimate lamb of God who will be ultimately sacrificed on Mount uh, Golgotha so he can redeem mankind, right? And then we move to... Uh, Exodus chapter 12, and this is week number four for us. We are looking at Exodus 12, and the story there is uh, the lamb of the Passover. If you remember the story, God wanted to redeem Israel out of the land, land of Egypt, so he sent Moses. Moses uh, threw, God through Moses struck Egypt ten times, and this passage that we have been studying is the context of the last time that God was striking Egypt where he let his angel pass through the land of Egypt and strike dead every firstborn in the land. And that was the reason why Pharaoh gave up and he eventually let all the people of Israel go. And God said, if you want to escape that judgment, if you want to escape that wrath, there is no way out except through the sacrifice of a lamb. And you kill that lamb, you 
slaughtered that lamb, as we discussed last week. You take the blood of the lamb, you paint it on the outside of your houses, on the doors, and this blood, God said, will be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And if I don't see the blood, then death will come into this house, right? And this is week number four for us. We still in Exodus 12, 1 to 11. Um, today we're going to be focusing on verses 8 to 11. So let's read that passage together. And then uh, we're going to just try to break down a little bit the last few verses in it. So Exodus 12, 1 to 11. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, This month shall be your beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. That's where we started last week, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses that they, where they eat it. Now, Focus with me, starting verse 8, because this is what we're going to be talking today. Verse 8. And they shall eat it, eat the flesh of on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Okay? Let's read that again. Verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And then God says in verse 9, Do not eat it raw, nor, nor bo boiled at all in water, but roasted with fire. Its head and with its legs and its entails, you shall let none of it remain till the morning. And whatever remains until the morning, you shall burn with fire. Verse 11, And thus you shall eat it with belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and staff on your hand. So you shall eat it in what haste. It is the Lord's pass over. Amen? Amen? So, what we said about uh, the Lamb of the Passover so far is that verse 1 and 2, God is saying that the Lamb of the Passover should mark a new beginning. And what we said about this is the death of Christ in the cross marks a new beginning in the life of the believer. That was verse 1 and 2. Then um, verse 3, 4, we talked about how this lamb was actually a sufficient lamb for the whole nation and was also a precious lamb that was not meant to be wasted, right? And then last week we were verse 5, 6, and 8, and we draw eight comparisons between the sacrifice of that lamb that night in the land of Egypt versus the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now let's move on to verses 8 9, 10, and 11. If you remember, when we started the outlines for this passage, we say verses uh, 3 to verse 7 talks about the sacrifice of the lamb, and verses 8 to verse 11 talks about the supper of the lamb, eating the lamb, okay? So this is two major uh, different passages here. Verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, and 7 talking about how to kill that lamb. 
verses 8 to 11 talks about how to eat that lamb. You guys follow me? And the killing of the lamb, that's verse 3 to verse 7, that's a picture of our salvation through the blood of Jesus on the cross. Okay? Verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 talks about our sanctification as a believer through Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross as well. You follow me? So the first part of the passage is a picture of salvation. This part that we're looking at today is a picture of sanctification, how a believer should relate to Christ and how the believer can grow in his walk with Christ, right? So let's look at verse 8 because that's where we're going to spend most of the time today. And they shall eat the flesh of the lamb on that night roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Amen? Do you want to know God's healthy diet for every single believer, what he would recommend for you? He recommends a meal that has three plates in it, right? The first plate, the main, the main part is the lamb, right? God said you shall eat that lamb, right? And then God said there will be two sides dishes with that lamb. The first side dish called an unleavened bread. And the second side dish that comes with that lamb is bitter herbs. So pretty much three things that this is God's recommended diet for every single believer. So if you know the Lord, if you know that you are saved and that you have eternal life, if you know that you are inside the house that is painted with the blood of the lamb from the outside, and you know that the wrath of God has already passed over you, then this is for you today. Amen? Three things that every single believer who knows that he's washing the blood of Jesus should dwell on and eat all the time. Amen? Number one, the lamb itself. Number two, unleavened bread. And number three, bitter herbs. Let's start with the first uh, main dish. And that is the lamb himself. You see, this lamb was not just for, for the wrath of God to pass over the people of Israel that night. It did do that, right? The blood of that lamb provided salvation and escape from the judgment of God that he's about to pour out over sin, right? But that same very lamb is also to be eaten by the people who are dwelling safely inside the houses that is painted with the blood. Do you guys follow that? And that's precisely a picture of Christ. Jesus died on the cross, and because of his blood, we know that we know that we know that we have eternal life, right? But God also had a different and another idea for Christ and what he means to us, and that is we as believers should feed on the lamb himself. We, be, uh, we should be feeding on Christ all the time. Amen? You eat the lamb. This is not just for decoration. This is something, something you need to be feeding on all the time. And Jesus said something similar to that in John 6, 56. He said, whoever does what? Feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. Whoever feeds on me, I will abide in him and he will abide in me. So Jesus said something to that extent as well, that he's not just for us to die on the cross to provide salvation for us, which is wonderful and great, but as a believer, you, you are to feed on Christ all the time so you can abide in him and he in you. 
Do you want to know how you can grow in your walk with Christ? You feed on Christ. You meditate on Christ. You dwell on Christ. You spend time thinking about him. You spend time studying him. You spend time thinking about what he said, what he done, and know who he is and what he does and what he can do for you. Amen? It is Jesus that you need to be dwelling on all the time. Amen? That's why it's just for me, so many things are just amazing. You want to know how well you're doing on that? It's really simple. All what you have to do is just take an inventory of your week and how much time you actually spend with God. I tried to do that one time. I had a paper calendar on the wall, and every day I would write down how much time I pray and how much time I study spending the word. Do that for a couple of weeks. It's pretty depressing, but it's real. It shows you that... You're now really feeding and meditating on Christ, right? And in the same inventory, see how much time you're spending on Facebook, Twitter, TV, pointless shows that actually has nothing to do with anything, and you will be shocked. Just keep track of what you do every week. You will be shocked how less time you spend meditating on Jesus versus all the other stuff that is actually purposeless and pointless and has no eternal purpose whatsoever. Amen? So do that. Do that. This is your homework till next week. Just keep track of what you're doing. And if you're not doing good, well, redeem yourself. Start spending more time. It's a decision that you have to make to spend time with God. Right? God will give you the desire to pray, the desire to, to seek Him, the desire to spend time in His Word. But... He's not going to force you to spend time with him. This is a commitment and the decision that you have to say. God, it doesn't matter if I'm busy or not busy. I'm going to commit to spend time with you every single day, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it takes. I'm just going to spend that time with you even, even if I accomplish nothing for the rest of the day. Amen? But we need to meditate on Christ. You feed on the Lamb himself. I am not a big reader myself, but when I came to, to America, it's amazing to me if you go to the metro or like in New York or here in Washington, D.C., and you see people, Americans in general love to read. This is my observation, maybe not Josh, but everybody else does. Um, you have, I see them holding a novel that is like, like five inches thick. And they just devour it in the, in, the, in the subway. And they just eat it. They're very intent about it. And they keep on reading, which is wonderful. But the amazing thing for me is this. These exact same people who love to read so much are so ignorant and illiterate when it comes to the scripture. I mean, you have a lot of Christians who spend... Somehow they find 10 hours in a couple of consecutive days or 15 hours in, in a week to read the Hunger Games, which is fine, perfect. But the same exact believers, the same exact Christians will have hard time to sit down and read the book of Matthew or the Gospel of John. It's just a little bit strange to me. If you're going to spend that time, if you can read that much, then why not God's Word, right? Why not meditating on Christ instead of something that is not of eternal value. I'm not taking that away. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But what I'm saying is, where's your priorities, right? Right? So we need to meditate on Christ himself. Take the time to spend it talking, thinking about Jesus, meditating on him, who he is and what he's done. And I tell you, honestly, like for me, like when it comes to preaching and stuff like that, if you go back and look at what we have been talking about since I became the pastor here, you're going to see that Almost every single week, I just want to talk about Jesus. And this is what's in my heart. I 
This is what I want to talk about. I think if I lift Jesus up to you, tell you who he is, what he has done, then, then you walk with him by default will improve. You will live holy. You will fast. You'll pray. You'll seek him harder. As the more I lift him up to you, the more you'll get to know him more. Amen? And this is my heart. I just want to talk about Christ all the time. There's nothing wrong with people talking about, you know, how to live a good moral Christian life and not putting anybody down. It's just not going to be me. Amen? Because I want to lift Jesus himself. I want to eat, feed on that lamb, not on something related to the lamb. Amen? So we need to focus on Jesus, meditate on Jesus himself. But number two, in that context, God didn't say, I want the leaders of the congregation to, to feed on the lamb, chew it, and then give it after that to the people, right? It was every Israelite's mandate that night to eat that lamb. Everybody needed to eat that lamb, right? It wasn't for the elite. It wasn't for Moses and his family. It was for every single person, right? And I tell you, I'm tired in a way of Christians who say, oh, I'm not getting fed in the church. Well, it is not. It is the pastor's job to divide God's word. And you need to come here and learn God's word. This is my job. And this is what I'm assuming here as my responsibility to be your teacher. But it's your responsibility to feed on the land throughout the week. It is not my job to give you all the... All what you need to know about Jesus in one hour on a Sunday morning, it's your responsibility to feed on the lamb yourself. You're the one who needs to spend time with God every single day. Pray, seek his face, and feed and meditate on Christ himself. If you think the pastor is the only person who's going to feed you God's word, you're in trouble and it will never work. Amen? Amen. So you feed on the lamb. Not on some, what some other people think about the lamb. You talk about Jesus. You think about Jesus. You meditate on him. And not only that, but it's every believer's responsibility. I would not say responsibility. It's our privilege to feed on the lamb every single day ourselves. Amen? Amen. So we need to feed on the lamb. That's the main dish. Think about Christ. Meditate on Christ. Remember, Jesus said, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is how you abide in me. Amen? Do you know why we have a lot of Christians going around miserable in their spiritual life? Because they don't spend time with God. We're 21st century American Christianity, the microwave and the drive through McDonald's. If it's more than 10 minutes a day, I ain't going to do it. It doesn't work like this with Jesus. Amen? You need to spend the time, go to your room, shut the door, and just forget the clock for, for, for a little bit, right? If it takes 10 minutes, it's great. If it takes an hour, then it's just as great. Amen? Meet, feed and meditate on Christ. That's the main dish that God wants us to eat. But number two, God also said that we need to eat something else called the unleavened bread. Now, what is the leaven represent? This is um, a big one. <clears throat> leaven represents sin, absolutely. Where we get that from? We get it from Exodus 12, 33. Look what, um, what God said here. Um, and the Egyptians, this is the word of God, Exodus 12, 33. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land of Egypt in haste. Think about this. That the Israelites were in Egypt for 400 plus years, and Pharaoh did not want to let them go. Nobody wanted to let them go, but once God showed up, the Egyptians in that land were just kicking the people out, just like, just go and go right now. Don't wait even till tomorrow. I mean, they've been there for 400 years, and when God wanted them out, the Egyptians like, just leave immediately, right? For they said, 
We all shall be dead after the firstborn died. All the Egyptians got scared and kicked the Israelites right away. Verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was what? Leavened. So they were making the dough. They're baking some bread. But because they needed to leave Egypt so fast, they didn't have time for their dough to be leavened. And then they said, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and their, their shoulders. So there was no time to stay in Egypt for the, for the dough to be leavened, right? So leaven represents tarrying and waiting in the land of Egypt, which is the land of sin, the land of bondage. And that's why unleavened bread means getting out of sin, getting out of your old lifestyle, getting out of the land of bondage. You follow that? So God said you need to eat unleavened bread because leaven again, leaven dough, represents tarrying and waiting in your old life, in your old lifestyle, and in the land of sin and the land of bondage. So leaven represents holiness. And when God said you need to eat not just the lamb, but also unleavened bread, God is saying, as a Christian, it's your privilege, number one, to feed on Christ all the time, but number two, to strive for Holiness. You don't need to keep holding back onto your sin. You need to keep on holding back into your old lifestyle and what Satan has for you and the world has for you. You need to strive, even according to the book of Hebrews, to the blood shed. If you have to die and shed your own blood so you won't sin, you need to do that. Amen? Let me highlight a couple of quick points here. Well, verse 11, God said you need to leave Egypt. How? In the he said when you, need to, when you eat, you need to eat it quickly and get out as soon as possible. Why is God kicking the people out as soon as possible? Because he doesn't want people to tarry and wait and meditate on their old lifestyle and, uh, and sin. Amen? He wants them out as soon as possible. You follow me? So, we need to feed on the lamb, which represents meditating on Christ. And we need to eat unleavened bread, which means striving for holiness. But let me show you a couple of things when it comes to that. Number one, I want you to see that God did not, after the day of the Passover, God said, you start a feast for seven days called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And God said, after the Passover, for seven days, I don't want you to eat anything leavened at all. Do you see that? Do you see the picture here? You, you get saved because of the Passover and the blood of Jesus. What do you do after that? You strive for holiness right away. You leave sin away. Out of your life, out of everything that you have to do, sin is out right after the Passover lamb. It's the unleavened bread feast for seven days. Now, notice this. Exodus 12, 19. God is saying this, for seven days no leaven shall be found where? In your houses. God did not say you should not just eat unleavened bread for seven days, but God said for seven days I don't want leaven to be even in the bedroom, not in the kitchen, but not even in the bedroom, in the living room, anywhere in your house. There should be no leaven whatsoever at all. You see that? And not only that, God continued and said, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall what? Be cut off from the congregation of Israel. This person died. God is not joking about this. This is not like a light matter. A matter. This is a life or death matter, right? Whatever, uh, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land, it doesn't matter who that person is. God said, if that person eats leaven, he's dead right away. You shall cut him off right away. Amen? Yeah. 
Do you see that? God is not taking sin lightly, especially in the life, in the life of the believer, right? The Bible said that the, the, the judgment will start from the house of God, not from the world, from the house of God, right? God does not accommodate sin even if you are his child. He's not angry about it. He's not going to like waiting for you to sin so he can punish you for it. But he's pretty serious about it. He does not accommodate it. He will not tolerate it. He will not come close, very close to you and know you in an intimate way if you're accommodating sin in your life. God did not want living in the house, not just in what they eat. Amen? That tells you how much God wants us to live holy for him. Amen? This is what Peter said. He said, if you call him holy, then you should live holy. Right? If our father is holy, then we need to strive for holiness. And that's even in the Old Testament, in the Passover passage. We see that. That God is a holy God. He cannot accommodate sin and he wants us to strive for holiness. Amen? But think about this as well. God demands holiness and he demands us to give it all to him and not hold on a single sin in our walk with him. Not because, think about this, not because he's a, a mean, grouchy old guy who's just trying to find faults on us so he can punish us and finds ways to hurt us. This is not who he is. This is not his attitude with us. Amen? He wants us to be 100% his, to strive for holiness 100% and not hold onto one single sin. You know why? Because he already gave it all on the cross. And the one who gave it all is demanding all. I don't know about you, that sounds fair to me, amen? The one who gave it all on the cross for us is demanding all from us. You see that? That's why verse in Exodus 12, 13, 3. Now Moses is talking to the children of Israel. And he's saying, and Moses said to the people, Remember this day. Look at this. Remember this day in which you went out of the land of Egypt, out of the hand of a house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord, for by strength of hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No living bread shall be eaten. Do you guys see the connection here? Moses is saying you shall not eat any living bread. Not because God demands you to walk his way no matter what. It is not. It's God's way or no way. God, Moses is saying the only reason why you need not to eat living bread and live in sin is because of what God has already done for you. He already set you free from the land of Egypt. He already set you free from the land of bondage. And because of who he is and what he has done in response to his amazing love, you need to live holy. You need to avoid any living bread. Amen? Amen. Let me read. I don't have a scripture here. But if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Exodus 20. That's when God gave us the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. Let me just read that real quick to you. Let me see what I have here. I have King James in my Bible, so I'm not going to try to switch it now. Let me see if I can. Uh... Anyway, Exodus 20. Um, 
Here's what God says, uh, Exodus 21, to verse, chapter 20, verse 1. The Bible said this, and God said this. And God spake all these words, saying, I am, think about this, look at this. I am the Lord thy God, who have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the hand of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So verse 3 is actually commandment number 1 in the Ten Commandments. God started the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 3. And God went through ten commandments that he's demanding from his Egypt, from his people. But you see the context. Why is God commanding all of this from his people? Verse 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke these words. And he said, I am the Lord your God. Think about this. I associated myself with you. I paired myself with you. I am the Lord your God who has already redeemed you, who has already shown you an amazing, unfailing love when I have redeemed you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Therefore, I want you to do these same commandments to me. You guys see that? God, when he commands stuff from us, when he asks us to strive for holiness, it's not because God is just being mean to us and he's saying my way or the highway, but it's because of what he has already done. It's because of his love. It's what he has done for us on the cross. In response to that, God is saying, I need you to look holy. You see that? You see that? Not very well? Yeah. Go over it again? Or you guys got it? And that's the exact same point that Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. Look at this. In that chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul was talking about a member in that church who, was, uh, who has actually slept with his, uh, his mother-in-law or his father's wife. And that's his sin. And uh, Paul hated that. So Paul is talking about this in that context. And he's saying this. Here's the context. Your glorying is not good. The people in Corinth is just so proud of themselves and of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that they do not see sin, the sexual immorality that was among them. And Paul is saying, your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven, sin, leavens the whole lump? Don't you see that this small sexual immorality that exists among you can actually end up ruining the whole church? Verse 7, therefore do what? Purge out the old leaven. Take away that sin from you, Paul said, that you may be a new lamb since you are truly, positionally, positionally unleavened. You're holy already before God because of your position. Why? Why is Paul demanding holiness? Why he's asking them to quit sexual immorality and try to strive for the holiness of God? Here is the very reason why he should do it. He continues and said, For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Paul is saying Jesus already died. He already shed his blood. He already gave it all on the cross. And because he already gave it all, he's demanding us to give it all for him and live and strive for holiness. You guys see that? Amen? You need to strive for holiness because Jesus already gave it all for you on the cross. And then he says in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast. That's the, the unleavened bread feast. The seven days feast. That God spoke about in the book of Exodus. Paul is not talking about the physical, literal feast here. He's talking about the spiritual feast of living an unliving life, a holy life before God, right? Not with an old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen? 
Do you see the connection between even the Passover dinner in the book of uh, Exodus and even the New Testament? Paul is saying that unleavened bread that the Israelites ate right after the Passover that represent living a life of holiness. That is precisely what you and me as the New Testament believers need to do and strive for. Amen? So two main plates so far talked about in that dinner that God is giving people. Number one, it is the lamb himself, and every believer needs to feed on that. But not only that, there's also unleavened bread striving for holiness. This is God's recipe. This is what God wants every single believer to do. Feed on Christ, strive for holiness. Amen? But not only that, there is also a third dish, a third plate that was presented that night to the people of Israel. What was it? Bitter? Herbs. Herbs. Exactly. God said you're going to eat something bitter with that. Something uh, doesn't taste very good. Amen? And that represents us as a New Testament believer enduring persecution for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Now I want you to think about a couple of things when it comes to persecution. Number one, persecution is a promise from Christ. You guys understand that? This is a promise, and as much as he promised us eternal life, and as much as he promised us that he will never leave us or forsake us, he also promised us trouble, right? That's in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In the world, there's a 50% chance, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, right? And Jesus said, in this world, depending on what you live or what your ethnic background, you might have tribulation, right? He said it doesn't matter if you're my believer, if you are a believer in my name, if you're my own child, that you are redeemed by my blood, you will have tribulation in this world. Amen? This is not the good news. The good news is coming. But be of good cheer. I have already overcome the world, right? Now this is the good news. But the point is still valid. Every single believer, Jesus said, we will have trouble in this world. So... Trouble, persecution, bitter herbs is a promise from Christ, but not only that, it's a guarantee in the Bible. It's a guarantee. Look at this, 2 Timothy 3.12. This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And he said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? How many, how many want to live godly will suffer persecution? Oh, every single one of us who want to live godly and pleasing to God will suffer persecution. Amen? Can I just say something here? Hopefully it's not going to be offensive, and if it will, so what? Maybe, 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 and maybe just it's a maybe we're not suffering persecution because we're not living very different than people in the world. Amen? Think about that. Everyone who want to live godly before God and pleasing to Him will suffer persecution. But not only that, there's another scripture here, I didn't write it down, but I think it's Philippians 1, the very last uh, verse in chapter 1. Paul said that it was given to you as a gift, as a gift, not just to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his name's sake. Amen? So persecution is not just a promise and a guarantee, it's a gift that Christ has given to us. That's Philippians 1, the very last uh, verse of that chapter. But not only that, persecution also in so many ways associated with proclaiming the gospel. Look at this. That's 2 Timothy 2, 8 to 10. Remember, this is what Paul said to Timothy. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to what? My 
gospel. And then he said about that gospel in verse 9, For which, for the sake of the gospel, I suffer what? Trouble. Trouble. As an evildoer, even though I am not an evildoer, yet I don't look any different than the murderers and the killers and the thieves in the eyes of the government and everybody else. I'm just in prison, just like every other bad person, every other evildoer. The only difference is I am doing it for the sake of the gospel. Even to the point of chains. Just like the evildoers, the murderers and the killers and the rapists and every evil person in that time who are bound by chains, I am just like them. The only difference is they're doing it because they did wrong. They're receiving their just punishment. I am being punished for the sake of the gospel. But here is what is amazing about Paul. But the word of God is not chained. What he's saying is I'd rather be chained myself, but the gospel is not chained. Amen? Therefore, look at this verse 10. I endure... All things for the sake of who? The elect. I endure persecution and suffering for the sake of the elect. Those who are to hear and obey the gospel. That they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying, I don't care how much suffering. I don't care how much persecution. I will endure everything. So that those who are elect by God will hear and obey. And come to find the life that Jesus has for them. I'll do it all for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Can I just point something to us? Maybe we are not being persecuted because, I'm just thinking, maybe because the devil doesn't think you're really a threat to his kingdom, you know? That's why the devil, the devil doesn't care about persecuting you. He's not going to cause you trouble because he doesn't care. You show up at church on Sunday morning, oh, that's fine. Do your little ministry at the church, oh, that's fine. Do all of this good stuff. As long as you're not telling people about Jesus, as long as you're not trying to get his kingdom shaken and snatch people out of his hand, he doesn't care what you do throughout the week. Do your ministry all what you want. As long as you're not bothering him, he's not going to bother you. Amen? So maybe we're not facing any persecution because... We're not really bothering the devil much. He's not threatened by us. If he ever felt threatened by us, maybe he'll come after us. But he's not doing it because he doesn't think that we're a big threat to his kingdom. You might say, oh, that's not true. We're Americans. The Constitution guarantees our freedom of religion. It doesn't matter if we go and evangelize. We are protected by our Constitution. You know, I tell you one thing for sure. You go to D.C. and get one of these drug dealers saved and threaten that gang when they see that their members are escaping and they're losing money. They will think that this American constitution that protects the freedom of religion is not worth the pennies they're going to spend on bullets to shoot you with it. Trust me. Go to Dearborn, Michigan. Go to, go to any Muslim closed communities and try to, to see some Muslim people saved. I promise you, people in that community will not care about the freedom of religion or about your American constitution or about your right to say whatever they want. They're going to come after you and they're going to persecute you, right? They won't care. If you threaten them, they're going to come after you, right? Maybe, maybe, and maybe, just maybe, we're not facing persecution because the, the devil doesn't think we're really a threat to his kingdom. He's okay with us doing our weekly ministry stuff. As long as we're not telling anybody about Jesus, he'll leave us alone. Not a big amen, right? <laughs> but these three main dishes that God said every believer should have that night. And this is what he wants us as Christians. If you know that you're washed in the blood, this is what you need to be doing all the time. You will feed on Christ, meditate on him. But number two, you strive for holiness. And number three, 
you will face persecution, especially if you do it for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Now let me just close with that verse. Uh, I think it's verse 11. And then we'll close this passage this week. How they ate it, okay? And God said, and thus you shall eat it with built in your waist, sandals on your feet, and staff on your hands. So three things as well that they need to, this is the manner of how they eat the bread, okay? Number one, there is built on their waist. Now in that time, um, again, I'm relying heavily on Bruce Waltke's article here. Um, he said that the people of Israel at that time were wearing long garments that when they walk, it's just difficult for them to walk. So God said, you need to grab these garments and tuck it in your belts. So this way, you have a belt in your hand and where you zip your garments all together, so this way you can walk fast and not be dragged behind and not be slow walking, amen? So there's a belt in your, in your waist and there's sandals in your feet and staff in your hand. This is a picture of somebody who's about to start a journey, right? A picture of somebody who starts traveling, right? And in an essence, what God is saying here is this. This Passover event, this Passover lamb will mark the very beginning of your journey as a pilgrimage all the way to the land of the promise. Amen? The land of Canaan. Amen? And that's our heaven. So that Passover lamb event started the very pilgrimage trip that will end up one day in the land of the promise. Amen? And that's precisely what happens to every believer. Once you commit your life to Christ, once you accept him to be your savior, repent of your sins, and trust Jesus and him alone for the salvation of your soul, then that very event marked the very beginning of your walk in the land of the wilderness, all the way till either Jesus come down to take us to him, or your life here on earth ends and you will be with Jesus for all eternity. Amen? What an amazing picture, right? This is just amazing, so beautiful, how just one small passage in the Old Testament just shows us so much about what God has in mind for, for us as a 21st century church, his salvation plan and his sanctification plan. Amen? All right, let's come before the Lord and pray.